Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Sub Focus to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album Evolve. Nick Dowmer, better known as Sub Focus, is a producer and DJ from London. Initially playing in rock bands as a teenager, Nick quickly developed an interest in electronic sounds and production, drawing inspiration from the thriving 90s drum and bass scene and artists such as The Prodigy and The Chemical Brothers. After studying sound engineering and regularly DJing, one of Nick's demos made it into the hands of Ram Records co-founder Andy C. Signing to their offshoot label Frequency, in 2003 he made his debut release with the track Down the Drain Hotline. Notable releases including Airplane, Time Warp and Rocket followed, and thanks to his fiercely creative use of electronics with a mastery of production techniques, he quickly established a reputation as a boundary-pushing artist, gaining his first number one single in 2008 with the track X-Ray Scarecrow. In 2009, he released his self-titled debut album, seamlessly blending elements of drum and bass, dubstep and electro house. The album reached the number two spot in the UK dance charts, a feat he topped with his 2013 record, Taurus, and 2020's Portals, both reaching number one. As well as dominating dance floors and taking his immersive shows to some of the most prestigious festivals and venues across the globe, Subfocus's impressive back catalogue includes collaborations with such artists as Wilkinson, Chasen Status, Rudimental and Alpines, among many others. He has also taken on official remix duties on tracks from artists including The Prodigy, Empire of the Sun, Major Lazer and many more. Maintaining his commitment to pushing the boundaries of his craft, his latest release, Evolve, sees him draw from all corners of the electronic landscape, all the while tied together with his familiar infectious melodies and dynamic bass lines. Today, I join Nick in his North London studio, and what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Vibration, one more time. It is Subfocus, it is Vibration featuring Arco from the album Evolve, and I'm very pleased to say that I am sat with Subfocus, Nick Dalmer, in Subfocus's very own studio. Hello, Nick. Hi. 
It's great to be here. Thanks so much for welcoming us into your space, yeah. your world. Oh, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Like I was saying, I'm a big fan of it. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be talking to you. It's great to be here. And it's funny, I was just smiling to myself because I always find when I'm listening to drum and bass, that the minute the, <laughs> the beat kicks I in, I want to yeah. jump up and start moving around. <laughs> and, and I just love that feeling, you know, because and it just it's like a, a rush isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's um, genre with huge amounts of energy. Mm. And when you kind of get into making it and playing it to people, I, I always feel like we're incredibly spoilt for the reaction that you get from the crowd, you know, because we're just the amount of energy that the crowds sort of give you when, when you're playing them drum and bass music is incredible. Yeah, 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 they really go for it, don't they? And you were saying yeah. that this track is one that you feel really positive about because it's almost written and recorded in the space of 24 hours and, and then road tested. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a really amazing day with Arco. So I, I came up with this demo for them, basically, I think it was the night before they came in. And then um, we wrote the vocal together in... Uh, a couple of hours that afternoon, I sort of came with a kind of melody that I was hearing over it. And they made some really great additions to that. And then we wrote the lyrics together and yeah, recorded it in here. They've got an amazing vocal technique that sort of, there's two of them, but they kind of, the way that they layer their vocals up is super clever. And they've kind of, it basically makes them sound like a choir. Mm. They'll sing into the microphone at the same time, which means that you can't tune them at all, which is good for a choir because you kind of want it to feel like more pitchy than you would a solo vocal. And then they kind of modify their voices in different ways to create the feeling of it being a group of voices rather than it being a multi-tracked solo person. If you just record one person over and over again, it sounds like a, a multi-track vocal rather than a choir. To sort of create those, those gang vocals is quite tricky. So yeah, they're yeah. all masters at that. Yeah, it sounds, sounds amazing. Where are Arco from? Well, there it's uh, Mali and uh, Leo are Arco, and they both had solo projects in their own right before, and uh, they're really cool. It's really real pleasure to work with those guys. Yeah, and then you got to uh, road test a version of it the following morning while yeah, performing so, in so, Spain. Well, yeah, I, I went to I played at this festival in Spain later that week, and um, I was so excited about the track, I was like desperate to finish it. It must have been only a couple of days later because I hadn't really had a chance to figure out what the drop was going to be, basically. So I was working on that on the plane and then in the hotel room. And I was sort of basically running out of time because my set was 6 or 7 a.m. So I, I sort of arrived in Spain at kind of midnight and then was working for about three hours on that and then had to leave my hotel room at four. So I basically did an all-nighter trying to get this song ready and played it and immediately had a great feeling about it. It's such an exciting element of... DJing and making electronic music because you can sort of road test things all the time. And it's kind of scary as well because sometimes they go down badly. Um, <laughs> but immediately I could tell, especially with vocals, I think you can tell, I think vocals and dance music can't be as intricate as a vocal in a pop radio mm. record, basically. So I think you can immediately tell if a crowd kind of uh, understanding a vocal quite quickly when you play it out. And yeah, it just went from there, really. Just I noticed people were gravitating towards it. Yeah, yeah. Enjoying it. yeah. It's a good illustration of the lifestyle of the producer, you know, the electronic dance music producer. You yeah. Know, you're creating something, you road test it at some ridiculous hour of the day. Yeah. You know, the sun's coming up and yeah. there's a, it must be a, an amazing feeling. But also yeah. the fact that you're just kind of working 
on stuff all the time. It's quite hard to switch off. Yeah. Um, well, a while ago now, like in 2015, I sort of moved to, I was used to work on a PC desktop on Cubase. And then I moved to using Ableton on a MacBook. So it's quite a big switch. I'd already been using Ableton on MacBooks for my live shows before that. And I sort of preferred the way Ableton kind of folds away. So the whole sort of DIW window is self-contained and, and every, all the bits sort of fold away. So it's, it works quite well, I think, better for working on the road. And there were elements of the workflow that I was preferring. Working on a laptop was quite a big transition for me, but it's really important to do that because basically we're always like on a plane somewhere and it's amazing to be able to get meaningful work done then if you're feeling inspired. And Yeah. I, yeah, the issue is that you are sort of always potentially could work at any time, so it's hard to switch off. But I think it's good to be able to harness that time when you're on the road, and and sometimes they can be um, that can be a really inspiring time. I find when I've got no shows in my diary, it's a sort of nice feeling, but it also doesn't give you any impetus to finish the stuff quickly. Whereas if you've got a big show impending on the weekend it's great motivation to get something finished to play and yeah. uh, a lot of the my kind of motivation for finishing songs comes from visualizing playing them in different spaces um i'm just about to play the final weekend of shows at printworks which is um incredible venue in london and that's been really inspiring that's you know been making me want to i've been trying to finish a couple of tunes for that you know so that we've got some fresh material to play very interesting constantly yeah. moving on Evolved, the album, is your latest release. We're going to delve deeply into three of the tracks from it. And there's so much to talk about. So maybe we should hear the first song that we're going to listen to and examine, which is Fine Day, and then, then we'll get into it. the sky, they walk by the grass, and they look at the grass, they look at the sky, it's going to be a fine night tonight, it's going to be a fine day tomorrow, it's going to be a fine night tonight, it's going to be a fine day It is Fine Day by Subfocus from the Evolve album. And how do you work, Nick? Do you create demos of your songs you know, to start the process? Yeah. The way the way I generally work, I've realised, is I never really start music by noodling around at all. I, I kind of always have like a, an idea in place for what I want to do with a, each song. So this one's clearly based around a familiar sample and the, the vocal is um, there's a track um, called Fine Day by a group called Opus 3 in yeah. the 90s that I became familiar with. And I always thought it'd be an amazing track to make a drum and bass version of. And I started researching the sample a little bit more and realised that it's actually from the early 80s. And the original track is credited to an artist called Jane, 
and it's basically a completely a cappella record. Yeah. And it's written by a guy called Edward Barton. Um, I, I lived through this whole era, so I'm... I'm do you I'm know about this Personally, yeah. yes, but I yeah. don't think a lot of people do. And, um, yeah, and it I, is a really interesting history. It's super interesting, and he he's written quite a few a cappella songs that have ended up being used in, in different dance tracks. I believe there are a couple of trance songs that also used his acapellas. I think Fatboy Slim sampled him at one point. But I, I love how sort of haunting this vocal is. So is that the Jane vocal then? So this? No, so my initial demo, the initial process was I found an acapella of it. I think I might have bought the CD of the Opus 3 version, which is sung by Kirsty Hawkshaw. Mm. Started working with that acapella just as a sort of proof of concept to see if it works. The issue with making different genre songs into drum bass songs is often the tempo is so different that sometimes a vocal might sound way too fast. But in this case, I felt it was working really well. So I'll play you my original demo and you can see what I mean. Yeah. So um, in a way, this started with your affection for the Opus 3 song from when you were a young lad. Yeah, exactly. And just I'm always kind of remembering samples and things that I feel like people might have forgotten about, basically. And, you know, because you think, like, well, you don't want to use something that's too familiar. Yeah. Um, but I felt like it had been a while since I'd heard anyone do anything with this. And um, I also have a huge, um, I'm a huge fan of, well, when I was getting into drum bass, I was, one of the first things I bought was the first um, Logical Progression album by LTJ Bookham. So I think at the time when I was making it, I was very much like, trying to channel those sort of, um, they used to call it intelligent drum and bass in, yeah. the, in the 90s. <laughs> but basically kind of, yeah, what LCJ Bookham was doing. I've, I still think that stuff from the 90s has aged really, really well. Sounds very futuristic even now. And I was sort of trying to channel that in the production and using old break beats like Amen breaks mm. and keeping the chords kind of running throughout, that type of thing. So yeah, I'll play my original demo. I'm just going to put in the vocal as well so you can hear what that sounded like. So this that's the chop of the um, the original acapella. By Kirsty. And this is my track. They may well be in different keys. So. Yeah, so I think at one point... I just have to move it, change the key of this game. There we go. So, I mean, at this stage, you're thinking, yeah. hey, this does work. This yeah. works very well. You no, know? And it's interesting because that original vocal line, the phrase, it's a fine day, is really powerful and really strong. Mm. But ultimately, it's the la-la-la bit that really penetrates your brain in a way. Yeah, yeah. I love, um, like, hooks with no lyrics. Mm. And there's loads of sort of famous examples of those in dance music. But yeah, I, I think at times when I was working on this track, I was thinking... 
do I just use that bit and write a new vocal that would replace the find a lyric or maybe replace the verse? I tried to do it a few times with different people and it just never felt, it felt kind of a bit wrong. And I think the original vocals, the whole thing's just got a bit of a magic to it. So yeah. I kind of didn't really want to touch it in the end and just left it as is. But I mean, it's always risky when you work on songs like this, you know, that you might not get permission to use them. So it's always a bit of a punt and you kind of, yeah, just the first stage is seeing if it works and then testing it. I think I played played this version at Glastonbury in 2000, 2019, maybe. So it was quite, um, it was one of the earlier tracks that I made for the, the album. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, it felt good. And then um, I spent a while finessing the production. At one point I changed the key from, I think I was in F sharp minor for a bit and then went up to G minor. I tried to do an F for a bit. I'd written quite a lot in F before because it's quite a kind of, when you make drum bass, you sort of think about what key you're in quite a lot in terms of where the sub notes are going to be. This tune isn't necessarily that like that, but if you had a really sort of chuggy song where you're going to be using the root note a lot, then it's good to think about being in a low root. So it might be F or even D is kind of, that's sort of as low as you can go. Um, when you get into keys like C sharp and C, you then have, it's, you can't really sort of live on the root too much because you are either a bit too high or a bit too low. I mean, um, vibration we were talking about earlier is in C, but because the bass line moves around a lot and it kind of hits the high C and the low C, it doesn't matter as much. But if you were just in the low C, it would be a bit too, the sub would be a bit too sort of flappy basically to really cut through in, in the, club so. yeah this is really interesting stuff because of course you know you've said the main thing to talk about here is this sample etc but you put the vocal on top of your breakbeat which you yeah. must have spent some time creating and preparing yeah. You know. sure yeah so so yeah. what went into that and how do you make a choice in terms of what kind of thing you're going to create because the rhythm is so yeah. important and yet, yeah. at the same time, it's how you introduce that rhythm and when you introduce that rhythm and what you combine that with mm. that kind of gives the track its extra power. Yeah, I mean, I think like probably the first things I I put in were probably the chords. But also one thing, this tends to be something I start with a lot, is um, I make drones in the key of the song that I'm working in. And I, I've sort of highlighted a couple here uh the way i'd normally do them is i'd record like a long pass of me playing an instrument there's a couple of things here there's one i made from a sort of bleepy square wave patch which is put through valhalla shimmer so it's got like a long reverb on it and then there's another one i've done with a string here and basically i i record a long pass of overlapping notes and then I put that into um, some software called Pool Stretch. I'll show you the process. So this is one of them. So this is the more bleepy one that I was talking about. The sound ends up sounding like this. And it, is this a keyboard? or? Uh, yeah. Sound? So this sound runs over the build-up section of, of Find Day. And I made it from 
a square wave patch in Serum running through Valhalla Shimmer. And the original sounds like this. Yeah, and I, I basically then put this into uh, Pool Stretch, which is um, it's like a sort of extreme time stretch software that looks like it was designed in Windows 95. It's very old looking. Is it old itself? You know, so yeah, it's quite an old piece of software and you, you basically um, put pieces of audio into it and then you can decide how much to stretch it out by. And there was quite a famous thing somebody did with it a few years ago. They put like a Justin Bieber song into it and it turned it into sort of a piece of ambient music, basically. Right. It sort of smooths out any transients or anything like that. So it's good for, um, basically just has quite interesting results when you put things into it. I also did it with this sound. These are some strings. I can't actually remember where the original patch was from, but I feel like it might have been a Spitfire string library. Right. So what's going on there? So there's lots of um, sustained notes on the mm. string. And then I basically, it's quite an experimental technique. I sort of just try loads of ideas like that and then put them into pull stretch and create. Um, so that was what I used for this. Actually ends up sounding pretty similar, that one. But I just like the way you get these long evolving pads mm. from it. I think the first time I did it, actually, I did it with the Roland Juno 60, which is behind you. And it's got a um, a hold function. So basically, it's like a sort of sustain button. And because it's only got a certain amount of oscillators, every time, I think, I don't know, it's probably six, I guess, because it's Juno 60. But every time you play a seventh note, the first note that you played will stop sustaining. But it's a nice way of making long chords. Yeah. And then I, I just remember putting that into pull stretch and getting some incredible, like, evolving sort of chords out of it. And I just, ever since then, it's been like a technique I've used early on in projects because it's nice not basically making music in complete silence. It's quite useful to uh, normally the next stage of my writing process is to, to write a bass line. Yeah. Or just like figure out what the root notes of the chord should be. It's just kind of the same thing. I might flesh out the, make the bass on more intricate later. But it's good to have something to do that too. Otherwise, you're just kind of doing it in isolation. So I quite often have these beds and I, I quite often reuse them from other songs and stuff right. that I've done. But it's um, a slightly unusual technique and it's an, a nice way of sort of starting stuff and it creates a bit of melodic movement underneath things yeah so was the bass line um, next in this i think yeah i think probably process. the chords so i was like using um there's lots of layers i think the major chord that you're hearing is this um emulator two patch i'm quite into just sort of um uh learning about the gear that was used for different older dance music and I was at the time really into 
emu emulator sounds and they're kind of early sampling keyboards sort of early rumpler type things and uh there's an emulation of them that i was using for this by um uvi and this is a, a Mercato string patch for this sound here right and uh I just, I basically love like nostalgia in sounds. I mean, this actually really reminds me of Pet Shop Boys West End Girls. Right, yeah, you know, I, can hear I think that. it's the same yeah, string yeah. patch. Wow. I'm quite obsessive about finding out what patches we use for certain songs and stuff. And I um, spent ages, for example, researching the strings that Goldie used for Timeless, which is a, a very sort of you know, seminal drum and bass record. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to learn more about it and um, eventually found the patch and it was just an amazing, yeah, I'll get excited by that kind of thing, yeah. basically. But um, yeah, so this is the, what I use for the main chords. And then I, I layered that up with a patch in Serum, I think here, which is more of a um, unison saw type thing. You know, a bit of an envelope on it. There's some sampled strings. And there's an, also um, this, which is, this is a sort of old sample I had of some, of some reverby vocals that I put into Paul Stretch as well. What else do I layer up with? There's that as well, which is like a saw put through loads of um, tape emulation to add warble and stuff like that. Right. And yeah, and then then I would have put in this um, bass for the breakdown, which is, I kind of quite often use a very similar patch for all my breakdown basses, which is just like a, a low unison saw, sometimes with a bit of high pass. I find that using a sub in a breakdown is often a bit much and it's a bit sort of takes over the mix too much. So I, um, the bases that I use for breakdowns tend to be completely different from the bases that I'd use right. for drops. So yeah, I also added in these sirene sounds. They were sort of reminding me a lot of the, a lot of old intelligent drum bass used to use, people use things like whale song in right. it. And you quite often get these kind of like pitchy sort of sounds. I think I even have some, there is a bit of whale in the intro as well, quite quietly. Let me see if I can find them. You know, you get these kind of like pitch bendy sort of signs almost. So I was enjoying that, that siren and the sort of similar feeling it had. Um, yeah. I think the next thing there's a few things I did. I I made this this pattern, which is quite simple, but this sort of helped help with the drop, which was created from another kind of old technique, which is using um got a piece of software that doesn't work on M1 Max anymore, unfortunately, but it's called Akizer. And it's an emulation of the old Akai time stretch, which was used in a lot of early drum and bass and Basically, you can use it to create tonal melodic sounds from breakbeats. So a lot of the time people would put them in and then change the settings so that they would create a kind of tonal breakbeat. I'll show you what it would sound like if you played the whole break. 
And it's, yeah, it's just another old technique that I wanted to yeah. try and use. So I sort of created this. And then I would have, I guess, been trying to figure out how to turn it into a, a drop and how to, what to transition into on that section. I really liked the hook with no lyrics on it, you know, um, yeah. as, as a means of, I kind of already had that in my mind as like, that's what you would have over the drop section. Um, so I started layering up things that would work for that. Um, I think another thing that worked well, I found for this, and I think maybe the first demo didn't have was also using the sort of type of technique that the type of way that you would chop it up. So a lot of the time when I'm chopping up a piece of audio now, I do it within Ableton. So I'd load the whole piece in and use the warping. But um, for this with the Amen, uh, which is here, So, and where where are you? Are you going back and getting out the original record that the Amen Break is taken from, or are you going back to a little stock you have? No, yeah, already? that's that's a good point to make. So, yeah, sometimes I will take an original break and process it, but often I will be using a sort of second generation break that's I've either found online or sampled from another record, and. Um, I can't remember where this particular one comes from. I feel like it was from like a like some amens that I found on a on a forum. You know, somebody was uploading a bunch of breaks that right. that their favorite amen breaks. You know, and there's it's one of those breakbeats that's got hundreds of different versions of, and yeah. it kind of lends itself to quite different sort of sounds depending on how you pitch it and. You know, some people distort it, some people compress it a lot, so it kind of can change. I'm completely fascinated by it because it's one of the things when I was getting into drum and bass, the Amen break is kind of, it's so distorted and unusual sounding. It's almost like a guitar in terms of like the excitement that you get from it. You know, like um, I remember when I discovered drum and bass and I was listening to it, it was kind of, it wasn't until the Amen break came in that I was like, oh yeah, this is drum and bass or jungle it's so synonymous with the yeah genre yeah. but it's, i mean you know when i was before drum and bass i was into rock music and stuff and you get that sort of excitement when you're young from hearing a, like a distorted guitar or something like that and that's kind of what i mean in the same way i feel like it's that crunchy sort of distorted sound that was really appealing to me when i was getting yeah into yeah it. no i'm just intrigued to know how how you create these things because obviously yeah, yeah. you can you can go back to the original record you can sample the section um is yeah. it the five stair steps amen brother um or is it's it, the, is it, the the band's called the winstons the winstons um, uh, but yeah is it's it? it's fascinating like how i've no idea and i've never met anybody that's like really been able to tell me how it was made you know you get People who are amazing, I should really like try and get in touch with someone who's a kind of an expert at these things. You know, obviously there are some groups that are an expert yeah. at miking drum kits in a way that, you know, a band from the 60s and 70s might have done. So that's probably the type of people you'd need to speak to to get that. But it has such a unique sound. I think it's something about the rides are very, the ride symbol feels like super gelled in to the rest yeah. of the break but it, it may well be that they were recording with probably like a very small amount of mics so yeah, that's the, yeah it's more about the where they placed it in the room and maybe some room reverb i think like if you're a drum and bass producer you just become familiar with the different varieties of amen there's the compton amen which i think is from straight out of compton right the rap song and then there's like various different ones with different pseudonyms and you kind of 
I mean, and people do process their own ones as well, and I've yeah. done that in the past. But quite a lot of the time, it's just about kind of having a repertoire of them that you might draw on and yeah. pick the right one for the job. Sort of. And thing. what's this one? I mean, this sounds pretty fast. I mean, this is labelled RS Amen, but I'm not sure who who made the original. It's at 174, which is the speed I normally work at, but it's a little faster than the kind of original jungle songs that you might have heard it in, mm. you know, 20 years ago or over 20 years ago now. Um, the way I've used it is quite, I've used it in a slightly old school way. So I've basically chopped it up within a sampler and um, I change the transpose of it as the pattern goes on to give it variation. So it, it slightly pitches up and down as the pattern goes on. Pitches down there. Pitches back up. Which is a technique for keeping it more interesting as yeah. it continues. And uh, it's kind of like a quite an old school technique. But I think... Doing it in a sampler really helps because when you're, especially when you're using an Amen in um, Ableton, for example, it will, because of the way you're manipulating it, it will fill all the gaps. Whereas I think in this method of working, you end up with like little silences depending on how pitched up it is, which just gives it a bit more definition. But it seems to feel different manipulating it that way. And obviously you can edit it differently and you sort of tend to gravitate towards different types of edits if you're yeah. doing it in, within a sampler. But it is an old-fashioned way of, of working with a breakbeat, yeah. And how much of that will you work out, you know, like in terms of duration and how long you want that to go on for? And then, because you're adding on top of that as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So I can... Um, so this is the whole drum, right. drum together. I'm... Um, Letting the Amen do most of the, be the sort of most characterful yeah. thing you're hearing. There's just tons of layering that you get used to doing, I think, especially in drum bass, because you're sort of filling out layers of treble often. So there's, sort of, I mean, I always end up with hundreds of hi-hats doing different things. And uh, I guess you're just trying to make everything feel like one thing rather than feel like loads of yeah. layers. and it's probably a lot of experience as to what layers work and also just building up a big sample library of things. This is um, one layer that I sometimes use a lot with breakbeats. If they've got kind of 16ths in them, just nicely fills out the top end and it's quite wide sounding. Yeah. So they're kind of like, I'd sort of make different loops of audio that I can reuse in different songs and stuff. Right. And I kind of know you know, which ones might work with which sometimes. But it, a lot of it's real like trial and error and just sort of matching loads of things up and seeing what works. I've got like a little shout from um, another break there called an assembly line break. I think you, you kind of get used to, especially with Jungle, but I mean, with drum and bass still, there's still this legacy of working with these break beats, which are, you know, tiny drum solos from funk records in the yeah. 70s. And it's mad the sort of intimate knowledge you get of these breaks, you know, like how everyone's basically manipulated these tiny bits of audio like hundreds and thousands of times. And you, you know, there's loads of different ways of interpreting this like quite small batch of source material. It's kind of an interesting thing about DMB. And do you find yourself 
jumping up and starting to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would drive you insane, obviously. But but you know, it, yeah. in a, in a way, you know, each time you're playing that, thinking, yes, you know, there must be moments when you're thinking, right, you just push back the chair. Yeah, up. yeah, no, definitely. I do find myself like dancing in the studio. It's weird because I'm working on my own a lot, so not really like that self-aware of it. But yeah. um, but yeah, for sure, hundred percent. Yeah, it's a nice feeling when you're like getting an idea going and then suddenly it's like really making you move and you're like okay this has really got something now and there's definitely a turning point with ideas where you suddenly kind of realize like that is gelling and that's the thing now and it could really work and then from that stage it's about you know finessing it and when you go back to the early demo when i listen back to that there's a lot of elements where it's the drums are quite loose and there's a lot of tweaking that goes on between those stages but when I've been going back and looking at the demos for this you know in preparation for the podcast a lot of them are quite similar to how they ended out I think I was saying to you before we started recording that maybe you have a sort of easier emotional relationship with songs that are easier to finish because it feels like a good experience and sometimes sometimes you can really grind out a result with a song but it means you have a more complicated relationship with the song and it also means you've heard it that bit many more times there's definitely a honeymoon period when you're working on a song and I find I'm always really careful to not record something too early in the process because I'll just listen to whatever's my first render of something I'll listen to to death because I'll just be really excited at that point. That'll be my peak excitement for a song. So I'm always a bit wary about doing that too soon because you can sort of wear out the ideas in your brain too early. Yeah. Is Um, there anything else we should hear from Fine Day before we move on? I'm trying to think. So I think then I would have added the bass, which is quite simple. Um, what it's called a re-space. And uh, this is like a classic type of drum and bass bass. It's a great sound, but it's created by detuning different oscillators and low passing them. This one I've done in Massive. This particular oscillator I just found was quite good for that the sound that I was going for. And then I've reduced the spectrum, reduced the intensity on it, which I think basically just like takes out high harmonics. And these type of sounds are great, but they're really annoying to work with because when you detune bass sounds, there's a lot of phasing that happens. So there's loads of sort of tricks of um, trying to sort of manage the low end. And uh, normally I'll layer in a sub. So this is a really simple bass setup for me but there's a sub here and then there's a Reese led on top of it and I think I've just like cut out a tiny bit of bass from the Reese so this is pretty simple but when you detune multiple oscillators it's sort of asking for trouble especially in the bass area so it's something I'm always battling with and trying to get the balance right right and what kind of trouble would ensue well just that you're it just creates a lot of muddiness basically and, and sort of unmanaged frequencies the sort of standard of mixing in drum and bass is very high so i always feel like you're trying to compete with very polished mixes or at least very loud mixes so the challenge is just sort of managing what's going on with the low end and simplifying the very lows to just sine waves basically to make them super clean i was working with a a new drum and bass producer in america recently and he his default track preset is a high pass on everything so it kind of gives you an idea of how like particular people are about making sure there's no interference in the super low end right um but there'll be a lot of um yeah when i'm sort of finessing a track there's a lot of work in terms of making sure that 
there are no overhanging tails of stuff. So I, I do a lot of stuff with um, the speaker on and off control in Ableton. So I'd basically, if there was like a reverb tail that I didn't want to be overlapping a drop, I'd just turn off that channel completely. Obviously, sometimes that's desirable, but um, there's a lot of management of overlapping elements so that you're just getting the maximum power from each element that's that's there at the time. So obviously using side chaining as well, I would side chain the kicks and quite often the snare, I'd use that to duck the low sub bass so that the there's a certain amount of sub in the kick and so that's not interfering with the sub from the right. bass line. You're able to show us that? Yeah, sure. So in this case, I've done it the most simple way, which is using a compressor. So you can see there, that's the kick pattern coming through and that's dipping the level of the sub. In fact, it's dipping the level of the group, which has got the Reese and the sub on it. Quite often I'll do it with um, using LFO tool, which is, um, should I bring that up now? I'll show you. So that's this plugin here. So if you set it to a bar, you can then sort of duck. That's an extreme version. Yeah. And you'd probably do something that's more like this. You're sort of looking for it to be imperceptible to the listener, but allow the power of the kick to come through. I've even started using this um, analysis plugin called Ozoloz. <laughs> and uh, this one you can basically put like different, you can compare the kick and the sub at the same time. So if you load in, So you can sort of see both of them next to each other and see how they're interacting. But it shows you like what I'm attempting to do, which is to have them kind of alternating basically, yeah. but sort of fading in and out. I mean, it's a very common dance music technique, but it's, um, yeah, it's something that you use a lot. Um, so yeah, but um I mean, there's tons of extra little layers in this um, song we could talk about. There's there's also, um, I did add an extra piece of vocal, which I recorded with the band uh, Lowe's. Right. And we wrote um, a bunch of stuff in whilst I was writing my um, album. And another song um, called Don't Want to Come Down is on the album. But for this track, we actually tried writing some of their stuff and putting it over this song. But I sort of, as I was saying, felt like I leant towards the original a cappella in the end, but we did end up using these ad libs that they did. Yeah, I just love that ad lib so much. I did these, so basically recorded a few of the first piece of vocal that you hear. And then um, I chopped it up and uh, put it through a, a gate, which is kind of like another old school technique that you'd use. So I've got this operator here, it's, it's silent, but it's um, triggering this gate to open and shut. So w without the gate on it, it would probably sound quite weird. Let's have a listen. And then, yeah, I just created that rhythm 
with the gate. It's fun because you can basically play the gate with a keyboard. So it's much more instant to come up with chops because I could just be playing yeah. any sort of rhythm there to create that. So it'd be something like... That kind of thing. So yeah. But um, one thing with this song actually was that I had these this sort of bleepy part in this section and it was kind of like this or that and I, I ended up going with the vocal and it's one of those I think it's a kind of good lesson in a way because I think when you start producing you kind of cram everything in basically and and the more I've gone on I've been much more like it's you kind of just want a few key elements at once so the listener can kind of take those in and I'll show you the element that I had there I'll show you over the track actually without the yeah ad-lib. so it's like a second 16 part the first 16 ending. So that sounds like this on its own. So it and, could um, have been that, but you decided to go with the other chopped up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just an example of like a sort of production decision that I was making at the time where I had this in the original versions that I was playing out to sort of fill room in the second 16. And uh, I liked it because it's, again, like referencing those old like LTG book and sort of drum and bass songs from the 90s. But I felt that it was, that the vocal was just like a slightly better fit for the song. So I I went in that direction. So maybe we could hear the vocal you did go for and maybe build up through the track again. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with the vocal. I'll fade in the track. interesting because that that vocal takes the track elsewhere away from being just a new version of fine day yeah no yeah absolutely yeah it's worth mentioning as well i i um did the vocal recreation with a guy called mark ralph who's uh, another producer i work with sometimes yeah. and we um had him on the show did you yeah, oh yeah, great yeah yeah. yeah yeah he's amazing and yeah. um I showed him a bunch of stuff from the album because I was kind of thinking, because I'm often working on my own, it's really nice to have somebody to sort of help you kind of achieve that final 10% with tracks. So I played him a bunch of stuff and we'd worked together before. And I think he picked out this song because he was a fan of the original as well. And he seemed like a good ally to try and recreate the vocal because, I mean, sample recreation is sometimes quite painstakingly hard. And... um we ended up recording it at um, a much slower tempo to get a much tighter vocal. Uh, I did it with a girl called Joe Hill, who's a really great up-and-coming vocalist. And um, we had to really like 
make her pronounce it in a super kind of English way. That was mm. like really, really key to getting the sound right. And uh, we actually ended up doing it in alternating lines as well, which kind of allowed us to have enough space between each take to get like a really good delivery in each one. Because it's quite congested as a vocal when you start to dissect it. You know, some of these samples sound good in a song, but you realise actually to record them, you know, there's no space for breaths or there's no... Yeah. Or, you know, often they're speeded up a lot. So he really helped in like kind of getting to the bottom of like how it's originally recorded and stuff. Yeah, That's really interesting. So I didn't yeah. quite realise that you originally worked with the Kirsty Herkshaw a cappella and then you re-recorded the vocal. Yes, yeah. So I didn't get around to talking about that. Yeah, so basically we, yeah, re-recorded the vocal from scratch and yeah, I was really happy with the way it turned out. But yeah, it, but it was definitely great. a bit of sort of, yeah, trial and error. So the... Um, and why did you have to do that? Just because it, you thought it would sound better or because it was a legal necessity? Or? I think it is a legal necessity. Right. Unless you... Because, like, in you know, there's sort of two sets of rights in music. There's publishing rights and master rights. And I think we were... It's easier to just... It's a bit like doing a cover, basically, yeah. of a song. So there, there's all kinds of, like, technicalities when you use samples and different ways in which you can get permission. I think this is the... This was the best way. But I think also, you know, the acapella was, I loved the original acapella, but it had some kind of quite strange sounds in the mix with it. I'll show you like both the acapellas actually, just to compare. So that's the Kirsty one. Yeah. They will buy the grass and they look at the grass. They look at the sky. It's going to be a fine night tonight. It's going to be a fine day tomorrow. Yeah, do you hear those sounds there? Mm. And there's, there's kind of some like bird noise and things like that in it, which is kind of cool. But I, I think, yeah, we we were sort of thought we might get a cleaner result yeah. by re-recording it. So these are the re-recorded ones. It's going to be a fine day tonight. It's going to be a fine day tomorrow. It's going to be a fine day tonight. It's going to be a fine. It's a bit of a click in there. <laughs> These are just lots of different takes of her singing the same lines. I think, you know, some of them we've kind of chopped in the middle of to get like a better start or a better end. Yeah. And I think because it's an old vocal as well, we were trying to like obviously make it like not very, like the tuning to be very minimal. So we might use no tuning at all, I think. That's something that I play with quite a lot. Like I think it's, um, it's always exciting to me when there's drifty tuning. I think it kind of gives it something a bit more of a sort of, realness sort of yeah analog feelings isn't it more humanity yeah, yeah exactly somehow. exactly very interesting yeah. um we should move on to another song yeah, so yeah, that well, was know, fine kind of day doing quite a lot. i mean there's so much to talk about ready to fly is the next song we're going to look at yeah um, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with ready to fly great you may have heard us talk about tape it before and if you haven't then let me fill you in as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. 
Many of our guests on Take Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. The next one we're going to look at is Ready to Fly. And yeah. I think maybe, Nick, if we hear the master, we'll get a sense of what Ready to Fly is all about. Sure. Angels calling me over, but my feet won't take me that high. Drowning in my emotions, but I'm rising into the light. My spirit cannot be broken. Now my heart's ready to fly. Yeah, give me your wings so we can go high up into the sky. So take me away, night after night. I need you to get there, give me the light. And just like a bird, take to the sky. So just a little taste of Ready to Fly. This is an interesting track because you give us so much. This has got multiple genres in one song yeah. in a way. And we've already yeah. heard a little taste of it. So there's like this kind of piano house element. Yeah. Um, you've got this kind of jump up, step up. When, yeah. What, I don't know what quite term. When the drums kick in there, what drum and bass term would that normally be? I mean, yeah, yeah it's a kind of a jump up yeah. type drop. Yeah. 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 But then... It takes us happy hardcore or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So towards the end of the song, in the second drop, we go into full-on 4-4 happy hardcore. And um, it was fun making this song for me because, again, like it's another thing where I'm sort of referencing my youth. But like when I was growing up, I was really into drum and bass, but some of my mates were into happy hardcore. And so that kind of music was like floating around sometimes... And I would sort of, at the time, I've kind of hate it because I was into 
drum and bass was much darker and yeah. more sort of serious sounding. And, and people were very tribal about their musical taste then, you know. But I used to, I was absorbing by osmosis, a lot of happy hardcore, and making this and playing with this vocal really brought back memories of that time and kind of was exciting because I was like playing around with this genre of music I'd never tried to make before. And it was kind of fun. And the reaction to that 4-4 section from crowds has just been absolutely mental. Like they're really, that section of the song really goes off. So it's... Yeah. it's um, I, I bet it's fantastic because it's yeah. almost like you're you kind of trick them because it's like the drop is going to come back, yeah, yeah. you know, because you've got a similar build to it, and then suddenly it goes off in a different direction. It's really exciting. Yeah, no, it's cool. And and um, one of the nice things was like some of the original heavy hardcore DJs that I was hearing in the nineties like got in touch after the song came out and were like really feeling the song. So it's really nice to like. I think it's. It's always excites, you know, like when you kind of get approval from your peers and stuff like that. So it was, it was a kind of fun thing that some of those people reached out. But yeah, the um, I did this track with um, Dimension, who's another John Most producer that I worked with before. We're good friends, and we've got studios pretty much next door to each other. So he's on the floor below me here. Right. So occasionally we end up collaborating on stuff, and um, with this, he basically came in one day and was playing me ideas and he played me the vocal for this song but it was like completely different and half the tempo so I'll show you the original vocal so this is actually also this is written by Joe Hill funny enough so it's the same right. vocalist that song on Fine Day So basically, there's not really like proper lyrics on it yet. And um, it sounds really slow, but we were playing around with it and basically speeded it up times two, which is something you'd normally never do. Right. Because it's normally, you know, if you were speeding up an acapella, like times two is just going to be too speedy sort of thing. So, for example, with the previous track, that was probably the original it was maybe at 130 and we ended up at 174 BPM. Yeah. This is like a 87 BPM. So I think, you know, he recorded it with the intention of this being a vocal on a drum bass track, but it sounded too slow. So he kind of brought this acapella to me and wondered if I'd be interested in working on it. And um, so what you end up with is, is this. You can hear there, like, we've, I think this is like not the original, original, because we've chopped up some sections of it. Right. The original recording actually just had a recording of Joe saying, Right, I've got to leave now. <laughs> she was literally the last thing she did in the right. session with Rob. Yeah. And just walked out of the door. So, so she, like, had, she had to be ready to fly to, to <laughs> get lost. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that was, um, it was quite funny recording the original and it was all on an SM58 which is like a you know handheld mic that you would normally use live you wouldn't normally use it to record a proper vocal um so we we ended up writing this song i think we we were working on it because we had a set together at Arcadia at Glastonbury which is the big um 
mechanical spider thing. Yeah. And we'd made a track called Desire a few years ago, which did well. And um, we were sort of thinking, you know, it'd be good to play something brand new from our set list set. So we had that in our minds. Another example of like when, you know, you have a sort of gig to work towards, it's sort of, it's very motivating. And uh, we ended up working on this for that show specifically to, I think we played it there for the first time. But um, we basically fleshed out the original demo just using this, scratch vocal so i think we even might have played it before there were any lyrics and it just kind of felt you know felt good enough to play even though there weren't really like proper yeah lyrics in but i so wouldn't did, try and, did, i wouldn't do that very often did she re-record this vocal then yes to, so to so be better enunciated and more clearly yeah so the next sort of stage was once we played it out and felt that it was sounding good we started to write words to it and because it's sped up times two, there are a lot of words. And I think that was where like my youth of listening to Happy Hardcore came in. And I was thinking about a lot of the type of themes you might get in the lyrics. And I like that kind of slightly kind of naive sort of, I don't know, just like that feeling of like, you know, talking about flying and things like that. It's, that felt like the right kind of lyrical theme for a vocal like that. Yeah. So I was spent a long time trying to get the words right, basically, and, and right. figure out what the, the words should be. That's interesting. But, but you said that you, with the vocal as it was, sped up twice, that yeah. that was, you put music to that and then played that out. So, so yeah, yeah. and in terms of the changes that we mentioned, yeah. were all of those in, in place straight away or, or did that evolve over time? Uh, this is, um, I'll play you the V1 session and I was surprised about how close to the final version it sounds to be honest we kind of basically just had a really productive session in the first instance but there are a few things that are different to the the final version so this is the first version yeah so this intro up got changed that was like a, a major change that happened Piano idea. I mean, that that was also something that we worked on in the initial session. Yeah, it's um, pretty standard M1 piano, but again, felt like it was sort of lived in the same world as that vocal would, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. You can definitely hear the drop is much rougher and less well engineered. So would this have been the version that you'd have played at Glastonbury at Arcadia? I'm not or, sure. Yeah. It might have been, yeah. I can't remember exactly which one got played, but I'm pretty sure we tested it at a very rough stage. Yeah. Um, yeah, normally do that because I think it's just, I think I was just really, we we're really excited about playing it. Mm. I wouldn't normally play something without a proper sort of lyric, but 
some of the the vocals sort of sound like they're saying things and that's quite often um i mean it's how a lot of songs get written you know a lot, yeah. of, a lot of songwriters will write a scratch vocal which is kind of nonsensical lyrically but has a good melody line and then and then you'll figure out what the words are later yeah um, so and the happy hardcore section was that already in there i think so yeah yeah right <laughs> i love it i mean i'm just thinking of the two of you in this room <laughs> yeah. kind of looking at each other say you know what would be good now <laughs> why don't we go happy hardcore on it yeah i mean um Rob had already sort of succumbed to the power of the donk previously because <laughs> <laughs> he'd um he wrote this song on his album called Offender which is a kind of acidy 44 uh jumbo song so it drops with a 44 beat as well and um we did a tour together in the new- in the pandemic in New Zealand which was quite mental because you had to stay in a hotel room for 2 weeks in isolation before you were allowed into the country right but I mean, this song was just absolutely his his song. Sorry, Offender was just a huge hit of that tour. Basically, you know, drum bass is at a very unique tempo. So there's very few other genres you can go to at the similar tempo. So it's fun to do switches like that because it kind of excites the audience. Yeah, I, I took a little persuading, I think, initially because I was like, okay, this is quite like crazy. But were well, you thinking um, my mates from? back in the day are going to have a go at me now I think well no I was actually thinking that they'd be really excited by it yeah and I was like remember sending it to like some of my old school friends and then being like really buzzing about it so it's good yeah and we were trying to with the first drop we were trying to fuse it with like you were saying like modern jump up drum and bass mm. which is um, and we can go into some of the like sound design for that yeah maybe we should switch to that now then. yeah yeah so the yeah basically this is the sort of mid-bass on its own. I think we ended up taking out a lot of bass from this sound. Um, So you get sort of trends in sort of bass sound design. I feel like there's something... I'm noticing a lot of the moment is sounds that aren't detuned at all because you kind of get a lot of power by just stacking oscillators, doing things. In this case, there's a sort of trend, especially in in more jump up trombo, sort of like basically playing around with the tuning of oscillators that have no unison on them. So using things like FM or in this case, these are just two in this sound here. There's two oscillators layered, actually with a sub as well, and then they're put through a big distortion. So it kind of, the distortion kind of changes how the sound sounds completely. And a lot of the time, quite often I'll put a distortion on on a synth and just then play around with oscillators and their tuning until you get some interesting harmonics going on. A lot of the time it's to do with having fifths or uh, major thirds and just like playing around with what, yeah, the relative tuning of two oscillators and how they distort together, basically. And until you're Um, happy. Yeah. So it's quite sort of a trial and error process. But I mean, a a fifth is like a, you know, it's like a power chord on a guitar. It's sort of those two 
frequencies tend to sort of combine in a really like pleasing sort of powerful way you know what i mean yeah um so it's something that gets used a lot and yeah a lot of sounds that i make now are kind of done on this sort of principle of, of just playing around with distorting two oscillators together sometimes even like making the oscillators like incredibly far apart tuning wise like maybe making one like up four octaves and one down three will create this kind of weird mixture of um sounds when you distort them together and uh yeah you can do it with different types of waves and yeah just a whole kind of technique of making bass sounds really but um yeah i've really got into using uh pedal for example as one of one of the distortions you might And just sort of stacking distortions and things like that. I'll show you like a more evolved version of that. Um, yeah, it's fascinating watching you do it because um, for those who are just listening to the podcast and not looking at our YouTube or via our Patreon page, you might be missing out on some of uh, Nick's expertise finding his way around the keyboard and Serum and the whole setup that you've got here. Okay, oh, excuse me, this. So this is an example of a sort of that kind of that kind of technique where I'm using um, an emulation of the culture vulture on this sound. And then these are um, sine waves. Wow. And you're changing the sync, which sort of changes like the sort of, I guess the wavelength here without changing the frequency. Right. But then it would be like putting that into like low passes to kind of shape it into something. But um, yeah, so that's the general yeah. principle behind that type of bass sound. There's lots of different other categories of drum and bass bass sound, like the Reese's we were talking about before right. and things like that. And uh, um, in terms of, so that, you know, with this jump up rhythm, like you, yeah. with Fine Day, you yeah. used the Amen break. Does jump up have a default rhythm that so many people use I mean, it or, um, or... no not necessarily i think there's there's definitely with that type of baseline in, in ready to fly it's, there's more of a kind of interplay between elements so that's a common thing that you do you'd have a kind of call and answer type situation where there'd be you know a more stabby bass and a longer thing those type of devices get used a lot but yeah it's, there's not really um a set style i mean yeah jump up is is more tends to be more sort of jarring and more yeah. impacty and stuff so what did um, you do you and dimension um so we knew we wanted to have this more stabby pattern and then we basically bounced reverbs from it. i think we, these are reverse reverbs on every note so it gave it more like so we we filled in the gaps yeah between the notes and then there's an interplay with that and there's a sub doing more or less the same thing. But we sort of built in some breaks into the sub, so there's kind of like a a bit of um, rhythm there. And then there's a lead on top of that as well that sort of has an interplay with the, with the bass stabs. I think we, we felt like it needed an extra lead on the drop as well, just to kind of give it a bit more excitement and 
yeah, it was nice to be able to like bring in the vocal actually over the second drop, which is something you don't tend to do very much in drum most because it's sort of it's hard to have a very energetic drop and the vocal as well. Right. I think a lot of when when I'm producing, I've, I'm thinking about like what elements are going to happen concurrently and how are you going to fit everything into the frequency spectrum, basically. So a lot of your kind of decisions on what to include are, you know, the, the mix, everything goes hand in hand with each other, you know what I mean? Because you, yeah. you've only got so much space in different areas for different elements, basically. But um, the vocal process was interesting. So we, at one point when we'd rewritten the lyrics, we got Joe back in to do the re-record, but we did a kind of mic shootout at the same time so we had an sm58 and a u87 a neumann mic which is like a high-end mic that people would use for vocals and uh we ended up way preferring the sm58 on this particular song because i think it had that feeling of it just gave it more of a sample kind of feeling and we, we literally recorded all the takes with both mics so we had loads and loads of takes to sort of sift through afterwards. Right, and, did uh, simultaneously. Um, so were yeah, the yeah. mics side by side then? Yeah, I can show you the the vocal takes project. This is a kind of simplified project now that we've yeah completed the song. So it's it's only got the takes we ended up using. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. it'd be interesting to hear the differences. Yeah, yeah. no, I play them next mm. to each other. I mean, it's quite subtle, but I think we felt that the the Neumann was basically topier, but it just took you out of that sample feeling. I think also the original acapella we worked in had the reverb baked into it. And we may have done that a little bit as well because it's a bit like how you would work with a sample. Often when you get an acapella of something, it has the effects, the delays and reverbs into it already. Yeah. And chopping up that that already has delays and reverbs on it gives it a cool sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we actually, yeah, we did actually record it. We recorded all the vocals half time again and then speeded them up. Right. So the same approach. So all of her recordings would have been at 87 originally. So, yeah, it was quite a process because once we'd recorded all of them half time, then sped them up, you get some cool artifacts from that. But you also. Her vibrato was sounding cool, speeded up, but a little extreme. So we then put it into Melodyne and took down the amount of vibrato in Melodyne. So basically, they were just a little bit less extreme. Uh, are we able to hear the, the unsped up one? The, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let me just, I'll show you the, the original pitch. Angels calling me over, but my feet won't take me that high. So yeah, that's the U87. And then I'll show you the comparison. So this is what happened when we speeded it up. Angels calling me over, but my feet won't take me that high. And then this is on the, um, this is the SM58. Angels calling me over, but my feet won't take me that high. The difference is really subtle when you're listening to individual takes i think when we started putting it together with a lot of the um compression and stuff the differences started feeling more extreme between the yeah sm58 and the u87 i'll see if we've got any more it, it is interesting versions. hearing the sped up version just because yeah. with certain words it yeah. sounds like she ends them really suddenly 
Yeah, I think we kind of worked on that a bit and got her to elongate certain yeah. things more than because she... that, it doesn't sound like that in the in the finished version. But it's interesting no. how how speeding up can create one effect, which is really great, and then another. It's almost like a a byproduct of yeah. of it is like oh no, and obviously that's why you ended up putting all the work in to get it the way you wanted it. To. Yeah, I think the process of working on vocals is often just so important to be really hot on the detail you know there's so many sessions in the past where i've recorded something and then realized i'm missing something when they've left so it's definitely about being really detail oriented and picking up on those sort of things whilst you're in the session yeah how common do you think it is to record a vocal with the idea that you're going to speed it up for me, it's been quite common. I've done it a few right. times. Because obviously back in the day, the yeah. reason why the vocals were sped up was an adjunct to the process of the way that they were making the music. And, and yeah. you know that it wasn't like they necessarily wanted sped up vocals, but it was a good way of having this vocal and it would work with this up-tempo. Yeah, rhythm. yeah. And I mean, sometimes I guess like people would have been like pitching and tempo is much more tied together previously. And now you're much more flexible in terms of like how much you can change the pitch and the timing of something. But I find it fascinating the way like drum bass started basically was a lot of people pitching up these um, breakbeat or breaks records with, with looped breakbeats on them to the wrong speed on the turntable. So you'd get 33 records being played at 45 and the sort of like really, yeah, really crude ways that that originally started happening. Yeah. And, then, and then that started becoming kind of like a style of its own and people were doing that on purpose in samplers and stuff. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, we should move on to another yeah. song um, so that we can squeeze everything in. Yeah, yeah so, definitely. Uh, maybe we should uh, fly on from Ready to Fly. <laughs> For sure. Uh, with a reprise of The Master, I think. Sure. Just love that. Who were the people who got in touch then? The old school happy hardcore oh, DJs um, who were oh, feeling your work. I think it was um, DJ Hixie right. um, got in touch. He was like, he was like a big favourite of some of my friends when yeah. we were growing up. So yeah, the energy of it is just so good. It yeah. instantly puts a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that is ready to fly. We are going to look at one more song from Evolve by Subfocus, and that song is Secrets, and we're going to look at that next. The next song we're going to look at from Evolve by Subfocus is Secrets, and it features a number of heavyweight collaborators, but we'll hear the master <laughs> uh, now. You know all my secrets. You know all my pain. Can I see you again? Can I be with you again? I've been falling to pieces. Listen to me say, I wanna see you again. Can I be with you again? I've been worshiping you, but it's been too.
It is Secrets with Camel Fat and Culture Shock and also featuring Roads by Subfocus. So how do all those people uh, get involved and, and become part of this story? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So this track is definitely one of the more convoluted processes of tracks on the album I thought would be interesting to talk about. It started, um, I did a remix for Camel Fat of their song Easier which featured Lowe's, who I've also worked with on the album. And um, they really liked the remix and it did well. And we sort of stayed in touch a bit just on Instagram, basically sort of DMing each other occasionally and eventually met in real life. But I think this was kind of during the pandemic. And um, I've been a big fan of what they were doing for a while. And they, they once in the blue moon, they'll send me like a vocal that they've been working on that they don't have a home for yet. And... Um, weren't sure what to do with and they they sent me the vocal of this song and um the backing was very different but it had a kind of slow breakbeat in it and i think they thought you know maybe it'd be something that i'd want to potentially try and work with and i I'll, i can play that yeah sure, hopefully i mean great. so this was um this is the original demo they sent me which is super rough production roads singing on it yeah and they're not sure where they're going to take it so they send it over to subfocus yeah yeah i think they just sent it to me just in case it sparked an idea and yeah that's quite often like the way sometimes songs get made you know quite often people will send me stuff that they think you know could work as a collaboration or i honestly i had no idea what they wanted to do with it and like I was quite nervous sending them anything back because I thought, you know, it'd be brilliant if we collabed on something. But mm. I wasn't sure maybe if they just thought it could be something that they have written that I could just use as one of my own songs or whatever. So yeah. it's often very open-ended at that point. But yeah, I, I thought like the, the demo had a lot of potential. And then separately, I worked on a track which we called, it's called Return Home at the time with... Um, culture shock when he he's a an old friend of mine an amazing drum bass producer and um he had the studio next door to me during the pandemic and so we'd sometimes work on stuff and um we worked on this idea which is like the very first sort of demo
So this was like quite a random day in the studio for us because we'd normally be making much faster drum yeah. bass. And so, sometimes we'd, I think around that time we were playing around with slower breakbeaty stuff quite a bit. Anyway, I loved the main gated sound in that. And I was kind of always coming back to that demo and refining it. Um, but then at one point I basically had the idea to fuse these two ideas and I just really liked the way the vocal kind of lifted that the gated sound and there was mm. nice like a nice interplay there. So that's kind of how the song came to be. And then basically at that point I then was like, okay, I feel like we might be on something here. Finally played it to the Camel Fat guys after about a year of them having sent me the vocal and um Luckily, they were into it, and Rhodes, who sings the vocal, was into it. And um, I did made stems, sent it back to them, and then they added some extra parts, which I can play you. And um, I sort of took those the parts they sent to me and added them back in. And I think the yeah the parts they added kind of brought it slightly more into their yeah. world of being, you know, their stuff is quite sort of synthetic and a bit dark sounding. And and then to finish it, I worked with um, Culture Shock initially a bit on the mix and then I sort of did the final version um, just here on my own. But yeah, it was a weird sort of, it's one of those strange times where kind of combining two songs can work quite well. Yeah. Um, I've had like some of my songs in the past I've kind of made that way. Like I've maybe recorded a vocal on one song and then written a completely new track over that vocal and that's ended up becoming a thing. So it's, yeah, it's often, sometimes you can sort of, write a vocal over a completely different song and it ends up working really well over something different. Yeah, um, totally. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah, in a way you could just talk us through it as yeah. it plays. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that, so the, the, the very start is your creation with Culture Shock from yeah. that time during the pandemic before you had the revelation that, hang on a minute, I could combine that bit of Camel Fat and Rhodes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so this is the original sound that we started with. Yeah. Which is like a, um, it's an M1 patch. It's just sort of like a long pad put through a gate um, to chop it up. And then, yeah, as it goes on, I can highlight like some of the sounds that came from different places. Yeah, that would be great. So, um... so this is from the original Camel Fat demo. Right. So these mid-range bass sounds, uh, one of the things Camelfat added. Right. Um, and I felt like they really brought it into their world much more. But the breakbeat was your version from that original track. Yeah. But it's in a similar ballpark to what they had, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's sort of gone through various uh, iterations. I think I ended up settling on a more two-steppy pattern than the one I had in the original demo. Yeah. 
And yeah, uh, those bits, those would would. <laughs> so I won't is... try and do a version of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so these. Um, you mean the the bleeps? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So we, me and Culture Shock added these. Right. And then Camel Fat added these. It's great. It's like you're trading noises. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The, this bit is literally like an interplay between our two productions, which is really cool. Sound that's just come in now. Yeah. Is, yeah, is that you or or camera? I think this is me and James Cox yeah. shot. I think we were trying to channel uh, Orbital Belfast. Right. So yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's been too dark to see. While I've been yeah. I mean, this track does channel a lot of different things because I can hear what you're saying about Orbital, but I get quite a lot of uh, Massive Attack, Unfinished Sympathy in this song. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I think certainly the original demo was in that world, yeah, yeah. big time. Yeah, I, I like making um, more sort of house tempo music, but I think I, I've often dabbled, and I think in the last few years I've kind of settled on this type of thing being like what I should be making at slow tempos because it has like the DNA of drum and bass and yeah. the bass lines and the break beats but it's also you know not drum and bass exactly so. yeah yeah um, I mean you were well known initially for having quite a variety of styles within what you were doing no you were experimenting with yeah yeah well things. I think like when I started um like in like the late noughties I think was when I started getting kind of when I put out my first album was a big time of experimentation for a lot of kind of people like making drum and bass and making bass music because sort of dubstep was a new thing then mm. and basically what felt like when you're making drum and bass it does sometimes feels a bit like a cut off genre because of the tempo so it was really exciting for me then that like other genres are kind of connecting to it and people were it was reaching a wider audience, but yeah, we we were yeah experimenting with dubstep tempos, house tempos, and I'm good friends with the Chase and Status guys, and we kind of came through together, and they sort of got heavily involved in dubstep as well. And we had a studio next door to each other at the time. We were we were renting from um, Pete Waterman actually. Right. Wow. So we were surrounded by Rick Astley and Kylie Gold Discs, <laughs> and then basically a bunch of us like uh, those guys, Shy FX, Breakage. Nero as well we were all sort of making we were basically encouraging each other to take more risks with the styles that we were doing and the tempos we were yeah the music we were putting out but I think 
I feel like now when I'm making different type of music, I kind of know what makes sense as sub-focus for people to hear me make at slow tempos, yeah. you know. So I sort of feel like I've found more my style when I do different tempos now. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. We have a few questions that we ask people, um, who everybody who comes on the podcast. Yeah. The first is about tech and whether there's something you're really loving using at the moment that has been integral in your creativity recently. Yeah, I thought of a few things for this, but maybe we've covered some of them already. I think like like I was talking about pool stretch for my mm. methods. I almost use that on every song, but it's not really something new. There's also a plugin that I love using called Clarifonic, which is amazing for adding more tops to things. And it kind of adds a sort of layer of sheen over things in a really nice kind of non-harsh way. So I think I, I would always, that would be a complete go-to if something was sounding too dull. I mix all my own stuff generally. So actually on this record, I did have some a tiny bit of mix help, but most of the time I'm doing it on my own. And for some reason with me, I always find that things lean slightly too dull in terms of like, there's not enough top end. Right. So I'm always adding tops to things. I think in general, mixes have just got much toppier in the last years. Like if I compare my older material to newer stuff now, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Wonder why that is. I sort of think like people are just pushing in both directions. There's more bass and there's more tops and mm. people are just trying to fill the spectrum as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I had one other piece of equipment that oh, I yes. wanted to talk about. Um, these things I just got recently. Right. So you've reached and, over and picked up a pair of headphones. Yeah. So I just bought some uh, some Apple AirPods Max. Right. I've been really enjoying uh, like mixing on them, basically. I think, it, I guess just like any new speaker is always quite exciting because you kind of have a fresh perspective on things. Yeah. But I think in terms of something that I'm like excited about right in this moment, because I've just acquired them, I'm kind of like, it's really interesting hearing stuff on them. And I actually ended up mixing like one of the last, the last song I submitted on the album on, on them. So hopefully it comes out well. Right. But, um, That's interesting. So, I mean, generally, I mean, yeah. we're in your studio. You've got some lovely looking speakers there. Would you normally be mixing with the speakers or are you yeah. testing on a variety of things? Is the headphones a, yeah. an expediency thing so that you can do it on the move? Or um, Yeah, I mean, the headphones thing is more for, yeah, when I'm working on the move. I, I'd always start by working in here and then basically just test on stuff on multiple speakers. I think you kind of learn stuff through every speaker, like even, you know, the iPhone speaker is probably mm. the most used speaker. So it's kind of... Super important that stuff translates well on there. And then you're also thinking about club systems as well a lot. And um, one of the biggest mistakes I make is that, like, you know, it's nice to hear stuff that sounds really wide in the studio, but then having a mix have mono compatibility is really good for clubs. Because sometimes, I mean, I guess most club systems are stereo, but you kind of, I feel like you lose, you can lose stuff that's too stereo kind of thing. So, yeah things have got to make sense through one speaker, basically. And sometimes you, when you mono the mix, you realise that it sounds like a disaster in mono. So you've got to like <laughs> make things. I think it's often things like leads where you just feel like, okay, that needs to be super present. That needs to be front yeah. and centre and obviously vocals and stuff, you know. Um, really interesting. I mean, you mentioned something. Um, another question that we like to ask people is about any unusual mm. habits or routines that you use oh, yeah. day to day that have helped you develop. As I a actually, producer, and I was thinking that yeah. you, you showed us the one about the drones that you were talking about. 
Oh, I was thinking there's a few things. I think there's like just doing it regularly is important. And I think there's a big push-pull with that when you're DJing a lot because you're often on the road and it's hard to produce a lot. So that I think moving to a laptop was really key to improving that situation a little bit. Mm. Um, but what, one thing I was thinking about is um, I love making decisions about things when I'm, particularly when I'm cycling in and out of the studio. So I cycle in and out of the studio every day. And um, stuff like the lyrics for Ready to Fly, I was basically just like writing while cycling on the way home. I think there's something really enjoyable about like that humans have about like doing two things at once. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're having a phone call and like walk, going for a walk or you're cycling and listening to music and there's something about doing two things at once that's good. And I use those times of getting in and out of the studio to either listen to what I've been working on or to just think about things like lyrics where they're kind of, it's kind of like a puzzle that you're trying to solve. I yeah. think that's a lot. I mean, that's music making in general, but particularly with lyrics, you know, you're thinking about like how many syllables fit in this section and stuff. Yeah. Um, Very interesting. And the last question we ask everybody yeah. is about advice. Whether you have any advice that you would share or recommend to other producers or up and coming producers or whether you've received some along the way that have really helped you. Um, what One piece of advice I got was um, my first record deal was with um, Andy C, he's a very famous drum bass DJ. And he kind of mentored me for the first few years of my career. And I think he was basically always just trying to get me to use elements that were very distinctive, like speech samples or vocals. Or I think, you know, when, you know, it's maybe something more particular to me, but I think when I started making dance music, I was like obsessed with making instrumentals. But it's really like the kind of, vocal elements that give something uniqueness and memorableness and, yeah. and so I think you know he encouraged me to to concentrate on those things that's what's going to differentiate your song from hundreds of other instrumentals you know like is it a speech sample is it something you know what's the the unique vocal element that's going to differentiate stuff but I mean there's so many bits of advice I can think of I mean I bumped into a guy who I gave one of my demos to years ago and he he runs a um, record label this guy called uh, Kazra who runs Critical who's a is a great drum bass label he was recording me giving him a demo back when he started his label just being like yeah I probably should have signed that you know like <laughs> I think there were there were loads of people I gave demos to that never got back to me and I quite often bump into them now and tease them about it or you know or just we, we just talk about it you know yeah. they I guess like everybody working music is always hyper busy and just there's a lot of things that, you know, you, you might not get a response because people forget or, you know, so being very persistent is quite a good, good tip. Yeah. Um, or just not, you know, not taking it too personally if people don't get back to you initially because there was, yeah, like many, many times that I had that experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. They probably hadn't even listened to it. Yeah, um, exactly. And, I mean, just... it's not necessarily a, a commentary on the quality of what you're, you're doing um yeah there was one final thing which was just like something that i thought about like a lot more recently or in the last like since i've been uh sort of professional but i listened to a uh, richard russell interview the guy who started excel yeah and um he was saying about how sometimes what happens with major labels is they might sign an act and then they'll put them in the studio with a big producer 
and it'll kind of like lose all the sort of charm of what was originally interesting about them. And it made me think a lot about like just having supportive people around you and basically having a kind of crew of people. Cause you know, you look at people as solo producers, but basically they're, you know, they make the stuff they do because they've got a network of people around them that sort of are excited about what they're doing. And, you know, I was really lucky early on. I had a number of friends who were really into drum and bass, who were really sort of buzzing off the music I was making. I was kind of making music to impress them, basically. Yeah. And then I realized kind of midway through my career, I got to a point where I had, I wasn't as tight with my manager at the time. And I was no longer in a flat share with a bunch of friends. I was like, I think living with my girlfriend at the time. And I was suddenly making music in a complete vacuum and not really getting much excitement from either my managers or people at my label or my friends. And I sort of changed management and started sort of re-involving some of my older friends in what I was doing and and friends some friends of mine started like coming to the studio and just enjoying hanging out and stuff and that completely changed like my enjoyment of music making again and you know you you realize that you can't do it in a vacuum basically it's completely based on having a network of people around you you know that are who are excited about what you're doing and yeah I think also you know having people like uh Carl Shock or Dimension around me here you know in in neighboring studios is really nice I think that you know, also generates that a bit of healthy competition between you as well. Yeah. Um, I'm always fascinated to see where people create, you know, so it's been fantastic to be able to come here and be part of your your world. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you guys. And I'm, yeah, like I was saying, big fan of the podcast. So thank you so much. And you've got such a massive year ahead of you. Um, Big, big shows. It's amazing audiovisual experience that Subfocus offers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, and yeah, that's, it's, that's you kind of daydream in here about aspects of that, I suspect, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like behind you is um, uh, Vectrex, which I've been using for visuals on the circular sound shows that I've been doing recently, mm. which, is the, which are the audiovisual shows that I do. Yeah. And yeah, I love that aspect of making electronic music as well. I'm a huge fan of acts like the Chemical Brothers. Yeah. And like the experience of going to see them and, yeah, it's, super, it's another thing that I find super inspiring, just like thinking about what visual would work for this track and like how how to represent that song visually. Yeah, it's a really interesting other dimension to it all, isn't it? We should play one more song from Evolve Yeah, um, as a kind of outro. What do you think we should go for? I don't know, actually. I I mean, there's, a lot, well. there's a lot to I mean, it. At all. You know, I really like It's Time, I really like Trip, but then yeah. you know, Turn Up The Bass, which... Ends the album, features Johnny L, who is a bit of a legend. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. Shall I play the second half of that? Yeah, yeah, idea. let's hear that. And, and yeah. Johnny L was an inspiration to you early on. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, hugely inspiring guy. I think, you know, he was probably, he's definitely one of the early drum race producers I heard, like recording their own vocals and stuff. And um, this track came from a track that he released a long time ago now, like in the mid noughties called Turn Up The Bass. And it didn't really, it wasn't like super well known, but like people that knew about it were, you know, was really excited about it. And I I was like, I managed to get his email off Nick Hawks, who is another one of the guys that started XL. And um, they used to release his music in the the nineties. And um, 
I was sort of not really expecting for him to respond at all because he's kind of a notoriously enigmatic figure and you don't really see many, you know, he doesn't sort of play out really, um, occasionally reads his music and I'm, I'm always a big fan of his his music. So uh, it was really cool that he responded. He basically re-recorded um, the vocals from this track and then years later, I eventually completed the track and sent it to him and uh, he thankfully liked it and um, sort of wanted to collaborate on it. So Fantastic. And yeah. now it's on the record. Yeah. It's the closing track on Evolve. Nick, thanks again. And here is Turn Up The Bass featuring Johnny L by Subfocus. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And in particular, thanks to all of you who have signed up to support us on Patreon. I'm just one part of the team that brings you Take Notes and it relies on your support. Access to Patreon includes the full-length videos of new episodes where possible, ad-free episodes and detailed gear lists, among many other things. If you'd like to join, head to the link on our socials or website. For pictures, highlight clips and behind-the-scenes content, head to our Instagram or YouTube channel. And on Discord, you can join the growing Take Notes community. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Some more courses, some more courses, some London sound, and turn up the bass. Give me some more courses, some more courses, some.